the world is very suspicious of kindness, isn't it? Sometimes we, sadly, are too. <clears throat> the idea that someone will do something for nothing and do it because they're concerned. Well, of course, there are many examples of that in the world among non-Christians as well as Christians. If that were not so, what a terrible world it would be. How much worse it would be if, in fact, non-Christians were always ungenerous, always unkind. But we know that the Lord said, you being evil, you know how to give good gifts, at least to your children, at least that far. And many people have set up charities and done wonderful things for people, even without knowing the Lord. And, and as a Christian, you can't ignore that fact. There is what we call common grace, isn't there? There is a lot of good stuff in the world. Lots of terrible stuff too, but lots of good stuff. But the idea of grace, nevertheless, as a permanent uh, condition of, of living is very challenging to people. And uh, even Christians sometimes find it quite hard to grapple with that kind of division between the fact that we do things and yet we don't do anything without the help of the Lord. We pray, we preach, we go out visiting, we talk to people, but it's all rubbish unless the Lord is in it. And we all tick that box. We'd all say yes to that. But in our hearts, sometimes we carry on as if it weren't so, don't we? Well, I, I think I speak for us all, as, as sadly, as human beings in that. And so grace challenges. And as though that hymn says, grace, tis a charming sound. That's a word we don't very often use these days. And uh, I think that it challenges people more than it, it charms them in many ways, although we need to be charmed, entranced, falling in love with that grace of God, don't we? Because the holy God demands perfection. And as we read these rules, and it says that these rules, these laws we put on stones, I think by that it means the Ten Commandments we put on the stones. I don't think it means the whole book of Deuteronomy, minutely um, there. I think it, it's talking about the law which supports, which undergirds all these kind of things. So when we've just read about being generous to one's neighbour in one way or another, of course that's covered in an overarching way by one of the Ten Commandments and probably more than one. Um, it's supported by them and though it's based on these aren't something different these aren't extra these are just ways of actually interpreting that uh, and we don't have to think very long to see that it must be true uh, that when you read uh, don't covet and then you start thinking about well what, what does that mean not coveting not wanting something and it, it covers so much doesn't it? it you know the human heart is so devious and we can deceive ourselves sometimes uh, and when you start thinking about what would that really mean not to be covetous and you start off thinking about as the scripture says your neighbour, your neighbour's wife and then you start thinking about things you haven't got things you've heard about things you'd like to do things you'd like to just get rid of and not do anymore coveting is ever with us isn't it you know, wanting a change to our circumstance wanting stuff that we haven't got or to get rid of stuff that we have got it's ever with us. And, and, and so the law is, covers, uh, to use a phrase in scripture, a multitude of sins in that way. Well, when, as I say, we've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy, or as I've been looking at it, I've come across a, a Hebrew word. Now, I, I, I know virtually nothing about Hebrew, so I'm not standing here and pretending I've learned it in the six and a half years since I was, uh, we were members here. I haven't. 
Um, but as I read about it, I learned that there's a particular word in Hebrew, uh, and I think it's pronounced chesed, like that, chesed, and it's translated in the Hebrew Bible as loving kindness. So we're talking Old Testament here. And it appears, apparently, 248 times in the Hebrew Bible. So sometimes people talk about, well, in the Old Testament, God was a God of vengeance and a God of armies and all that. And in the New Testament, somehow or other, God changes his mind, Jesus comes, and then there's a different way of looking at things. But of course, if you're at all schooled in the Bible, which I know this church is, we know that's not true. We know that the same God gave one and gave the other. We know also that even the institution of the Old Testament and its laws was given us as an example. And Paul takes it a lot further and says, well, actually it was a demonstration of a law you couldn't keep. And the purpose was to drive you to Christ. It was like a schoolmaster. The purpose of all these rules was to actually show you this is the heart of God, but it isn't your heart. And you only have to start trying to live for an hour a day following any of these principles to realise that open before God, that, that we don't share that loving heart, that chesed, that heart of loving kindness, which appears, as I say, nearly 250 times in the Hebrew Bible. And in the first, one of the first English translations, Coverdale, which is 1535, so 80 years before King James Version, Miles Coverdale version, he translates it as loving kindness. He introduced the phrase into English, the loving kindness of God, putting two ideas together. The fact that God was kind because he was loving, loving kindness. And, and interestingly, I read that in Hebrew, it, it, um, among the Jews, this chesed, this loving kindness, is actually a virtue in its own right. So like we say, oh, you should have patience. Uh, patience is a virtue and so on. And people say, well, what are the virtues? You know, mercy, patience and so on. Apparently, if you'd ask, ask a Jew that, they might say loving kindness is a virtue. A virtue taken straight from the scripture itself. About 250 times that it occurs. The King James Version mostly... 150 out of the 250, apparently, translates this chesed as mercy, which is good, but it doesn't cover the whole idea of God's nature, of God's loving kindness. Mercy is something we hear about. We learn that Allah is merciful. It's one of the things that, 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 that people of Islam say. They say, Allah is merciful. Well, um, I don't know whether I speak to the, the ladies, the women here present, but I know mostly if I speak to the men uh, when you were lads, if you remember that game where you would wrestle with someone in a park and, and you, the object was to pin them down on the ground and then you would kneel on their arms and count to three. You would try and hold them down, like they used to do in the wrestling on the telly, and, and until they said, mercy, mercy, and then you'd let them go, right? Well, God is much more than Allah in that respect. He's not merciful just in that way. Okay, then, I'll, I'll let you go. God's mercy is massively more extensive than that, massively more kind, massively more loving in the face of what he knows us to be. And, of course, that's why he sent the Lord Jesus himself. That's why he came. 
Uh, and this word chesed, this word loving kindness, it appears in, in other texts which you needn't turn to, but I'll just reel off a couple of them to you. De- uh, Deuteronomy 5 verse 10, showing mercy to thousands. Apparently that is showing loving kindness to thousands. 7 verse 9, he is a faithful God. He keeps chesed, he keeps loving kindness with them that love him and keep his commandments. And then 7 verse 12, if you keep these judgments, God shall keep covenant and chesed. God shall keep loving kindness turned towards you as he swore to your fathers. So that's, that's the background to the nature of God in this word loving kindness. And Deuteronomy fleshes these things out. Some people would look at them and say, well, these are, this is a rule keeper's delight, isn't it? And of course, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. You know, they made tassels and they hung them on the end of their clothes and they walked about. And perhaps, perhaps some of them said, when you, buy, when you take a pledge, don't take a millstone or something like that. They actually hung them. And we read these words, don't we? You know, you, fringe is long and phylactery is broad and so on. But we know that on, on their garments, they hung words. A bit, bit like having a T-shirt with a, with a motto on it. But their mottos were taken from Scripture. Uh, and they were pinning a law to themselves. Well, it, if you think about that, if you, put, if you had a T-shirt which declared some kind act, how long would it be before either you reproved yourself or somebody else did, silently or out loud? You say that and you do this. Well, that's what we're like, isn't it? To go around, it's a dangerous thing to go around advertising law keeping uh, because we can't <laughs> we, we can't do it and yet that's what the Pharisees did uh, they, they law kept and the point of these laws I think is that we're, we're being charged to look at the motive behind them because God hasn't changed it isn't as if he thinks that was used to be a good idea not taking a millstone for a pledge but now you can take as many millstones as you like it's not changed with the New Testament the New Testament, what it does is it declares ways that we might come to the Lord, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might have the power to do these things that are implied in these laws. That's, what, that, 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 that's the way it should work, that the gracious gift of the, of the Holy Spirit might help us in these things. The steadfast love of the Lord might help us. Nowadays, it's often translated, this word chesed, in some of the modern versions, as steadfast love, love which never gives out. Israel was condemned, not for failure to keep the rules, really, but for what we might call heart failure. Israel was condemned for a failure of the heart. They ought to have known about it because they said this so often. And apparently in some parts of Judaism today, this is compulsory. You have a service and somebody will stand up and go, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And of course we know that the Lord himself quoted it, didn't he? Have you not read? Have you not heard? And apparently in Hebrew it's called the Shema. People will say, oh... We need the Shema before the service, and, and that's the verse that they will come out with. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's the commandment that we so often fall short of 
And Israel was condemned, even as they chant these words, uh, for not being able to keep them. Before we did Deuteronomy in the Big Read at church, we did Exodus. And one of the things that people kept saying in the small groups when we were doing Exodus was that basically the people just didn't get it, did they? They, they didn't get it. And Moses and Aaron would stand up and tell them things about what the Lord required. Moses went off up the mountain to speak with the Lord. And down below, even Aaron was having a collection of gold earrings, melting them down, creating a calf. And then the people were falling down and saying, this is the thing that brought us out of, Israel, out of Egypt. <laughs> you can scarcely imagine it, can you? And yet you can imagine it. Imagine the way it slowly developed, that idea went round the camp and they were persuaded that it would be a good thing to look at and a good thing to do because this Moses, was he coming back? Well, well, nobody knew. But basically what that reveals is no heart for God, no heart for his word, uh, for the prophecies. And what was needed was something completely different. So we find in Ezekiel, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Uh, do you remember this morning, I, I was saying at one point that the prophecy that the Lord was going to come is all through scripture, isn't it? From Genesis 3. And it keeps reappearing in various guises. God reappears and, and restates his covenant, covenant. And almost every time it happens, you learn a little bit more about what the Lord's going to look like and what he's going to do and what his kingdom is going to look like. And as I also said this morning, uh, that's what they were condemned for because when the Lord came, they didn't recognize that. And so he said to them, haven't you read the scriptures? Don't, don't you know them? You don't know me because you don't know the scriptures, he said at one point. And at another point, you don't know me because you don't know my father. You have all these rules tied to you, but your heart is far from me. And so even in Ezekiel, hundreds of years before the Lord came, the promise is, is reiterated again. And there's a bit more. You're not going to have a heart of stone when the Lord acts on the cross and then the gift of the Spirit is given. You're going to have a heart of flesh. It's going to melt your heart so that you have a heart which is a bit more like God, a loving, kind heart. Well, that's a challenge for us, isn't it, as Christians? How loving, kind is, is our own heart? And there are then various examples and one of them, which you read about in, <coughs> in 24 verse 6, is millstones. Uh, and the Lord says, you're not to take somebody's millstone for a pledge. You lend them some money and you say, well, what, what have you got? What's your guarantee? A bit like your mortgage in your house. And they say, well, I've got this millstone. You're not to do that because... You're taking the man's livelihood, the family's way of living. How is he going to feed his family? Uh, back in, in history, uh, particularly in, in British history, when you come up to the 19th century, millers were often very rich. They were often very rich people. I used to go on a camp. Some of you might remember this. I'd be away for a week taking kids on a school camp, and we used to go to Houghton, or Houghton as the, the posh people call it there, near St Ives on, on the banks uh, of the river there and the chapel we stayed in was an ex-chapel and it was built by this guy called Potto Brown and he was a miller and he owned mills he owned mills uh, all the way along the ooze there and, and so what he had was a means of uh, turning corn into money 
and people took all their cartloads of grain, and, to, and he, he made millions. He was in today's a millionaire, and he built a chapel, and he built other chapels, but he also started a mission in London. So he had all this money, and he used it for the Lord's purposes. But he was a rich man, was Potto Brown, uh, uh, and life of tragedy. He married three times. He seemed to be very keen on women called Mary, because in the graveyard there, there are two gravestones, both called Mary. So I think you had to be called Mary to qualify as, as a wife, but be that as it may. He was a miller who, who earned money, and, and, and millers, you have the means of production, don't you? After your millstone. And God says, well, don't take that as a pledge. Don't take a life-threatening pledge from people. Well, we come down to the day. Well, not many of us own millstones, but um, so imagine we're owed something. Money, a book, a DVD that we want back. What God is saying here is, go easy on people. And the reasoning is always the same. We read it two or three times. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. God says, don't think, right, I'm going after them. It's about time they gave it to me back. I've asked twice, and now I'm fed up with asking. I'm going to go again, and this time I'm going to give them what for. God says, remember, we were slaves in Egypt. And, of course, for a Christian, that means we were a slave to sin until we grasp that Jesus had died for us till we came for him. That's what we were like, like the Gentiles, like everybody else. And God says, remember this, that the Lord Jesus Christ came all the way from heaven because you were slaves for sin. And don't go grasping. Don't go grabbing your rights. Hold yourself back. Don't take things that matter. Rein yourself in. Seek to be kind. Well, when you consider the New Testament and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he taught a lot about salvation, but he also taught an awful lot about how we, what kind of characters we should be, what we should be like. Sometimes as evangelicals, we kind of gloss over that a bit uh, to get to the cross, and I, we understand why, to get to the important bit. But he spoke an awful amount about the heart and what you were to be like. Now, of course, we say as as evangelical Christians, well, you can't really start on that path in a way that pleases God until you come to him and he is your saviour. I said that non-Christians can be generous and we know that many of them are. You know, many of them have made millions and given millions away. But the point is, in God's sight, that doesn't count. It counts for nothing because... The first thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. That's what is demanded of us by a holy, perfect God. And so no matter the good deeds that we've done, they don't count for heaven. We give thanks for them on the earth. What a miserable place it would be, as I said earlier, if people weren't capable of kindness for one another. It would be awful, wouldn't it? And, and we see kindness and we thank people for it. We don't deride it and say, well, that's worthless. Of course it isn't worthless. It helps to make life a better place. But as, to, as regards salvation, it doesn't count. And that's sometimes the message we find it hard to get over uh, uh, to people. And so God says, remain in a state of holding back your heart because you were once a slave. You were once helpless. Others ruled over you. And of course, with a Christian, we know that's a picture. Egypt is often used as a picture of sin reigning in our lives holding us back. And that's how you were until the grace of God came. So don't turn around 
and demand things. And of course, Jesus even, even told a parable to that account, didn't he? He actually told a parable about someone who was given a small debt, uh, forgiven a small debt, and promptly turned around and went and demanded something from somebody else. And Jesus was saying, you know, look at your heart. Look at what you need, a, a change of heart. And then we get this rather interesting picture about the open doorway. So we've got up on the screen there a picture of a half-open door, and it looks as if, it looks as if you could walk in. Um, there's nobody on the door. It's just open. You could go through it. Well, we, we had a, a verse there in, in 24, uh, verse 10, 24 verse 10, which says, uh, when, you, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into the house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. You can easily translate that into modern experience, can't you? Something is owed to us, and, and it takes over us. We just want it back. We just, we've had enough. We want it back. God says, rein yourself in, pull yourself back. If you, as it were, go to their house and the door is open, don't think, right, I can just walk straight in there because they owe me. God says, remember that you owed God and he came and sent his son. And stand outside the door and the man will bring it to you. You can easily see when you start looking at these things, people say, well, they're just a load of rules. But when you begin to think about them, that's not really a rule, is it? That's much, much deeper than that. It's talking about the way that our hearts should be set towards other people on account of God's mercy, his loving kindness to us. Don't just barge in, don't just go in because they owe you. Uh, when I was at junior school, um, we, on the May Day, we used to do these little entertainments. And we had, I remember being in a little play, and it was about the wicked bailiff. Uh, and I was this wicked bailiff and I had this big black moustache and a big black cloak uh, and it was a bit like a silent film where the poor widow was about to lose her home and I still remember the lines I had to say uh, I had to go in and say I've come for the rent, it's overdue I'll have me dues, I'll not be denied any longer but that's actually the picture that we have here somebody like a bailiff saying well, I want what's mine God says, well what is yours? salvation if you know me and, and the reason I came and, and so don't just go overboard about these things being owed in God's sight gives us no rights the world would think that was a very odd thing but being owed does not give us a right in God's sight to be other than we should be and then we have this, this next picture, which is 24, Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 22. I'm showing a picture of wheat in a field there, the harvest. And this little picture that's painted. You're harvesting. Obviously, in modern parlance with big combine harvesters, these things don't feel quite the same. But nevertheless, I'm sure that um, uh, the Woodcraft family, they could, they've heard tales that go back far enough and they, they can see that once upon a time, even in this country, not so long ago, these things pertained, things were left, or that thing, people were meant to be helped in some way with the harvest, or people could glean. Well, of course, 
you take your life in your hands if you walk round when an enormous combine harvester was trundling round the edges of a field. But of course, it's just a picture. It's a for instance. So have you forgotten sheaves? You suddenly think, oh, you know, well, wait a minute, what about that, that far corner? Did anybody do that? Mm, nobody seems to have done. Don't go back and get them. Can you see how that fights against our human nature? Even, even if we kind of dress it up as kind of we like to be tidy. We have all kinds of reasons for defending ourselves. Well, we, we like tidiness. I didn't really want to go and sort it out, but it looked so untidy. I just had to. I couldn't hold myself back. I had to do it. God says, don't go back. Don't go back. And as the Jews entered this new land, far from being like the Canaanites, they were being called to kindness. So they were being made to sort of think, uh, oh, I've left some sheaves. Whoops, I'll go and get them. No, I won't. To challenge yourself. And sometimes that's what's required in the Christian life. The Lord told a parable to that effect, didn't he? He told the story about um, the sons that changed their mind and the one that said, uh, no, he wouldn't go. And then he said, yes, he would. Well, we don't preach on that very often, but whatever that parable teaches, it certainly teaches that as a Christian, we should challenge ourselves and sometimes think, well, that was wrong. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I should have done this. I'll go and do it. Right? That's the kind of heart that God requires of us. We won't be perfect. We know that. But a heart that challenges us to be better people for God's sake, because we were slaves to sin. And he's given us the opportunity through his death and the gift of the Holy Spirit to be something different. Well, exercise it. Be like that, says the Lord. And then he, he moves on again to the olive tree. And he says, um, harvest it once. And of course, olives, if you've seen an olive tree, uh, greeny and grey, and they kind of blend in a bit. Uh, and I guess... They're a little hard to spot, you know, in the leaves and to pick out. I imagine it's quite easy to miss one or two, uh, you know, unlike, say, a blackberry, or where they stand out in the bush, but with an olive, quite hard. And the Lord says, well, if you miss them, don't go and harvest it a second time. Don't do it till your hands bleed. Think there are people out there who can do with that, that they can glean, leave it for them. Now, of course, again, that doesn't have an exact, certainly in our modern world, uh, equivalent. And yet, of course, you don't have to think very hard. And you see that it's, it's a call to kindness again. Are we the kind of person, thinking about the olive tree, are we the kind of person who will always just stretch up to get that last bit that belongs to us? Always make sure that, well, it's ours, I'm going to get it. God says, don't be like that. You were a slave once upon a time and I came. Say to yourself, if you say I'm going to get what's mine in the next breath, no, I'm not. I'll leave it. I'll just leave it. The olive tree. Do we stretch out? Or do we make a conscious effort, as the world would say in modern parlance, to let it go? People often give advice to each other like that in the columns and on the social media and so on. Just let it go. 
But without the Lord Jesus Christ, that's very hard, isn't it? It's, it's easy to say, hard to do, to let it go. And that doesn't just mean kind of, okay, well, I'll let it go, but actually I keep thinking about it. It's still bugging me. It's still driving away at the back there. No, it means completely in God's sight. Take it to him, ask forgiveness, and then it's gone. And if you get it back, well, fine. And if you don't, well, fine too. So many examples of that. And then these rather strange things that we have in um, 22 uh, and verses 9 to 11. This mixing, these three seeming rules about not mixing seeds together. Well, I suppose we can see the, humanly speaking, you can see the logic of that. And some people have taken these things and they've just kind of made a scientific rule about them. And they've said, well, obviously, you know, if, if you chuck down a handful of seeds in which you add barley and wheat, and then you wanted specifically barley. Well, you've just made a real job for yourself, haven't you? How are you going to pick out the barley from the wheat? Um, I remember having a job when I was a student of uh, hand-picking wild oats, walking up and down fields and, and picking out wild oats and, 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 and trying to spot them and being taught and uh, being told off by the farmer's daughter because we were a slovenly lot. and We'd kind of walk past them if we could get away with it. Picking out um, mixed seeds would, would not be great fun, would it? But there is a, a greater principle at stake here. Uh, and he, he drives it home in different ways. He says, don't wear mixed materials. Well, of course, we're very used to mixed materials. Uh, I, I couldn't uh, be definite about it without looking. Uh, but I think that the shirt I'm wearing is polycotton, uh, a mixture of polyester and cotton. Uh, do I feel that I've broken God's law on it? No, I don't. And I'm sure you, you wouldn't either, because we understand that something else is at stake. God is painting a picture here with these seeds, with these materials, and then he goes further, the animals. And he says, don't yoke together inside a yoke, uh, an ox and a donkey, don't, don't mix two animals. Well, in the first place, of course, that, that would be rather amusing to look at, I guess. And, and, and if we tried to imagine two different animals working in concert together, we can imagine it wouldn't work very well I think that, uh, and it's almost that God is almost inviting us to look at that as a ridiculous thing, I think, you know, to, to try and picture it. Sometimes we can look at these things and be so solemn, and you think, how would that work? Well, it, it wouldn't, would it? It couldn't possibly work, two different sorts of animals. But it's a picture, the seeds, the materials, the animals. God is saying, don't mix and match your religion. When you go into Canaan, don't mix and match. Don't do what the Canaanites do on one hand and then turn to the temple and do the offerings and, and think of me. Don't take things from the world. The world will often say, well, you, you, you need goodness and kindness and charity and thank God that they do. But nevertheless, you take your direction from the Lord himself. Don't, don't mix your materials. Of course, you could take this even further and say, well, as evangelicals, who are you going to mix with when you, for example, offer the gospel? Well, we know often that we have, um, GBM call them gospel partners, so they work with different missionary societies. But as far as I know, and I hope this is true, they don't work with, with the Catholic missionary societies. You have to have a partner that holds to the grace of God as the only means of of doing anything worthwhile in this life. A partner who knows 
with you that they were a slave in Egypt. They were a slave to this world and only the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed them. Don't mix up your motives. Don't mix things together. It's not some new vegan rule uh, that we find here. I'm sure some people have treated it just like that. I'm sure that some people have looked and thought, oh, look, there's another rule that I can keep. Here's another rule. We know that the Pharisees did it all the time. They had the rules, for example, about the Sabbath day's journey. Uh, you could only go so far. But then we understand that actually they made up little rules. So the, the, the story is told. I don't know if this is true, but people say that they then had suitcases and they would go a certain number of miles and they would stick the suitcase down and they would say, well, the suitcase is kind of the house, the home, so I've come that far. And then you could go on further from the suitcase because the suitcase was your home, so you hadn't you started a new journey in effect. And, and, and we smile at that, but we look for ways of getting out of things, don't we? We do, as human beings. That's the kind of hearts we have. And God says, don't, don't mix up your motives. Go for the loving kindness of God. Don't take something from the Canaanites, something from the Catholics, something from the world, however well-intentioned. Take from me, for I am all, all goodness, all loving kindness, all chesed. And it's a principle that he even shows in these stones. I showed stones like this to the children. I think these might be in the Highlands of Scotland. They, they look as if they might be to me. Could be Wiltshire, somewhere like that. But the point of it is that they are uncut stones. The Lord said, when you come to the land that I'm giving you, set up some stones. You can dress them, you can put plaster on them, you can decorate them to a certain extent, but you are not to chisel them. You are not to shape them. They are to still look, like the picture, uncut. So you find them on the ground and you prop them up. Well, what, what's going on here? Well, of course, you find them as, as it were, as God left them. That's the picture. We're not literally saying God hurled stones down, but it's a picture. You find what God has left, you stand them up, and you write on them God's law as you enter this land. This is God's land, and these are God's laws. But don't start shaping them and think, well, I think it would be nice if the, they were a bit flatter on the top. Or I think it would be nice if they, they looked more cuboid. This one sticks out a bit. Don't bring your own art and craft to it, to the gospel, to enter into a new land, to working the way God wants you to work. Don't bring a bit of the world into it. The Lord's way only. The stones were to be uncut. So when we first came to the Lord, sometimes we perhaps some of us years back, we kind of misunderstood what was going on. Sometimes we were taught wrongly. Um, uh, some of you didn't have this experience, but I know that in the churches where I was first converted, it was very much the idea that you chose the Lord. You made a decision for the Lord. You, you decided you would or you wouldn't. Uh, the decision was your own. And yet, of course, as you move on to the Christian life, you realise how ridiculous that is as a picture, not least because the scripture never describes it like that, but also because you know that left to your own heart, you wouldn't have done anything. We're told we're dead in trespasses and sins, so how can you then say, God, uh, here I am, in a sense. We know that faith is a gift of God, so the very movement towards God that we made 
was engendered by God himself. He was the one who, who brought us to that position. And we don't always understand these things when we first come to the Lord. We think, well, back to a time when I decided. Well, there's, of course, there's a truth in that. You did decide. It felt like that. Uh, and it was like that to an extent. And yet, everything that's good has its origin in grace. Everything that's good has its origin in the loving kindness of God. And it turns out, when you look at the Old Testament, it's the same God at work. Of course it is. It's the same God actually laying these things down as in the New Testament. It wasn't that God was all harshness on the one hand and then after the cross he decided he could show a different face. God was only ever loving kind. He is ever, ever. We, sometimes we, we lose track of that. We, we understand it theologically that God is kind. But when we actually look at our own circumstance, things that are displeasing, things that are hurtful in our lives, things that we can't seem to make, bring any change about, we all know those things, things that just are very obstinate. We don't somehow think of the loving kindness of God in quite that same breath, do we? And yet all these things we know from the Apostle Paul, they turn out to the benefit of the gospel. They turn out to the benefit of the Christian it might not seem like that, but God is all loving kindness. He doesn't have any pur other purpose for you as a Christian, for me, than to be kind. And therefore, we should be kind. We should think kindness, because God does nothing else for us. He is a kind, loving God. We take from him, and we rejoice. Uh, you know, when Paul gave these words, don't you? My grace is sufficient for you. You know, you know where they come from. That Paul had the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but we know it was enough to disturb him and to tell us about it. Three times he prayed for an answer, take it away. And God said, in the end, look, Paul, this is my final answer. My grace is sufficient for you. My loving kindness, my heart towards you as a Christian is sufficient. He's kind, isn't he? Is he not kind? Well, we declared that around his table. Would people say that of you? Would people say that of me? Well, we don't know what they believe, but they're quite kind. I guess it's, it's something that is hard to build up a reputation for and very easy to have a reputation knocked back for, to be kind. And yet that, that's, that's the injunction. Be kind, because that's the heart of God towards us. Remember, we were slaves, and the Lord Jesus came, and he died on that cross. And so what else should you be but thoughtful and kind? What else should I be but gracious towards those with whom we have to do in this world? Amen.